Amen. Well, good morning. morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in a wonderful worship to God, our King. Theologian A.W. Tozer, he wrote, quote, Worship of the loving God is man's whole reason for existence. That is why we are born, and that is why we are born again from above. That is why we were created, and that is why we have been recreated. That is why there is a genesis at the beginning and why there is a regenesis called regeneration. We are thankful for the new birth, for that recreation, for that regeneration that comes through repentance and faith in Christ. This week, for various reasons, had me pondering the famous American author Mark Twain. He is an iconic character in the American imagination. As many of you know, he penned such classics as The Adventure of, Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. He's roundly considered one of the greatest humorists that the United States has ever produced. And while Twain was considered a witty intellectualist, he absolutely abhorred Christianity. He found the God of the Bible to be revolting. He's famous for saying, quote, the best cure for Christianity is reading the Bible, close quote. He was sure it was full of thousands of mistakes, he said, and should be completely disregarded as fables and lies. And when we hear something like that from someone who is clearly very intelligent, it causes the born-again Christian to wonder and to ponder. How is it that someone like Mark Twain, raised Presbyterian, could not see the beauty of the scriptures that we behold every time we open them? As we have sat under the gospel of Mark for a year and a half now, with nearly every detail being elaborated and mined and explored, even finding minor linguistic traits pointing to the authenticity of the Bible... We can sit and read glorious, epic treaties like the book of Ephesians or the incredible depth and doctrine of Romans, seeing 66 books written by 14, 40 authors over 1,500 years, and yet is completely coherent and consistent from start to finish. How is it that a man like Mark Twain could not see this beauty? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They could be sat down in the midst of the light of heaven and not see. They could sit under the most compelling preacher and remain undaunted and unconvinced. The truth of Paul's statement in Corinthians was made most clear in the case of Mark Twain with a very little known event. Once when visiting England, Mark Twain had heard a great deal about a certain preacher in London that was making quite a stir. His publications were all over in every country, including the U.S., No doubt Twain wanted to go and see for himself what this fuss was all about over this preacher. And of course, this preacher was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
Thus returning to America, Mark Twain went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London on a dreary Sunday morning to hear this phenomenon. Now, there's no indication anyone knew who Twain was. He was anonymous in the crowd of thousands. After some extensive research on my part, I, I believe the only evidence we have of Twain having gone to listen to Spurgeon is a personal journal entry made by Mark Twain. And would you like to hear what he said? Journal entry, Sunday, August 17th, 1879. Raw and cold and a drenching rain, we went over to the tabernacle and heard Mr. Spurgeon. House three quarters full, say 3,000 people. First hour, lacking one minute, taken up with two prayers, two ugly hymns, and scripture reading. Sermon, three quarters of an hour long, a fluent talk, good sonorous voice, topic treated in the unpleasant old-fashioned way. Man, a mighty bad child, God working in him 40 ways and having a world of trouble about him. Spurgeon was not his best today, I judge. He was probably even at his worst. It was so cold I was freezing. The pouring rain made everything gloomy. The wooden congregation was not an inspiration. The music was depressing, so the man couldn't preach well. Beloved, because of the date in Mark Twain's journal, we have the exact sermon that Spurgeon preached that rainy, cold day. We have it verbatim. If any one of you desire to read it, it's, entitled, it's titled, Contention Ended and Grace Reigning. Now let me give you just a flavor of the very words that entered Mark Twain's ears. Quote, Dear anxious one, if ever you are saved, it must be by an act of undeserved favor on God's part. I do not care who you are, you are guilty. And if you escape execution, a free pardon will have to be given to you by the great king for reasons found in himself alone. For there is nothing in you which can constitute a claim for mercy. You may have never fallen into adultery or murder or nor even committed theft or false witness. But the same grace is needed to save you as to save an adulteress or a murderer. You have no merit to plead nor any claim upon God. If you shall ever be saved, it must be by a high act of the Lord of mercy, passed in his infinite sovereignty, not because of anything in you to deserve it, but because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. So stands the matter. And this controversy between you and your God is meant to bring this fact before you and push the question and issue with you. When the Lord contends with a man's soul and the law of the Lord enters his spirit, it hides pride from him and it lays his glory in the dust. So says Twain. Spurgeon was not at his best today, I judge. He was probably even at his worst. And these were the last words left with Mark Twain as the sermon finished that Sunday morning. O come, ye wanderers, and rest in Jesus. Come, ye most lost, most ruined, most hopeful, hopeless, and find heaven begun in Christ. Oh, you that sit on the verge of perdition, who have made a covenant with death and a league with hell, whose death warrant seems to be signed and put into your hands, come to Jesus, and that handwriting of death shall be blotted out. 
The impending judgment seems even now to scorch your souls. Come and find deliverance from it, for God invites you. Tarry no longer. May Jesus sweetly lead you to himself. Amen. Spurgeon was not at his best today, I judge. He was probably even at his worst. The man couldn't preach well. Oh, Mr. Twain, such preaching you have never heard. But in this case, the God of this world has blinded your mind as an unbeliever to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Beloved, I read most of that sermon. It was a masterpiece. But only the sheep heard the voice. Only those whom God was effectually calling heard that clarion call. To all the others, it was so cold I was freezing. The pouring rain made everything gloomy. The wooden congregation was not an inspiration. The music was depressing, so the man couldn't preach well. Oh, that we had more men today that could not preach as well as that. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued with the extension of our series of the rich young ruler with a message titled The Impossible Salvation. With the rich young ruler having departed away in sadness, having the very author of the Ten Commandments, having opened the law to him, exposing his heart, his idolatry, his love of wealth and the trappings of success, laying bare his faulty understanding of the word good, Jesus examined this man as a doctor examines a patient. And he gave him the bleak diagnosis. And sadly, this young ruler would never know the cure. He would never be told the cure or given the saving message of the gospel because he would not accept the devastating diagnosis of the heart. We saw Jesus giving the law to the proud, law to the unrepentant, law to those who would not turn, and grace to those who were humble, grace to those who would turn, grace to those who would repent. The message of the gospel is a beautiful pearl. It is a priceless pearl, and we do not waste it. Or as Scripture says, we do not cast it before swine that they may trample it underfoot. God did not run after the man with the good news of the gospel. He let him go. Perhaps to let the law do its work in this man's heart. We're never told what happened to the rich young ruler. We also witnessed last week that this whole scene did not take place in isolation. Many saw this amazing interaction. And the reaction of this crowd was a a real head-scratcher for many. Jesus pronounces woe upon the rich, saying how hard it was for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. That it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now this seemed to most of our listening ears to be a pretty self-evident statement. It's no earth-shattering truth that on the whole, wealthy do not see their need for God. They trust in their riches. Their success in life breeds a, a pride that separates them from God. Seems logical, matches up with so many witness encounters I've had in my life. But the reaction of the crowd told us something radically different, didn't it? The crowd does not say, well, yeah, but of course, the rich are hypocrites. They're lovers of self and money. Of course they can't come to God like that. That's not their response at all. Verse 24 and 26 shows that they were shocked, that they were amazed, 
that they were bewildered. How then can anyone be saved? What a very odd response. And so we dug in last week to that response to find out what was driving it. And we saw that indeed there was nothing new under the sun. Israel had their own version of the prosperity gospel in full bloom. They had a gospel that said if you were rich, you were blessed of God. If you were poor, you were cursed of God. Healthy, blessed of God. Sick, cursed of God. We had our own Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer rabbis in Israel teaching the same principles. That's what's driving the crowd's amazement. If they being rich, being blessed, can barely get into the kingdom of God. I'm poor. I'm less blessed. I'm even cursed. What chance do I have? None. I have none. And it goes even further, we saw. If you're rich, you're buying the best sacrifices for the temple. You're bringing the finest bulls and the purest and the whitest lambs. Surely your sins are well covered. The kingdom of God is almost guaranteed for you. But I brought in two turtle doves as a minimum sacrifice in Deuteronomy for someone who is poor. I'm miles away from the pearly gates. If one who is rich can't get in, the blessed one can't get in, the one who can bring the bulls and the lambs can't get in, what hope of any of us? In response, Jesus says, you're right. You're right. Salvation is impossible. Impossible for the rich man. Indeed, impossible for all we see in verse 24 as Jesus casts his net wide over everybody. It is the impossible salvation. And if you're looking to your works, if you're looking to the loftiness of your sacrifice, if you're looking to your material wealth, all are chaffed and all will be burned up when tested by fire. None can save you. You say, who then can be saved? On your own? No one. You're right to be dismayed at the proclamation. Last week's message could be reduced down to one line. The meaning of the text given simply. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Everyone in the sound of Jesus' voice was trusted in their ability to pay. Their ability to work. Heaven awaits those who earn. Yet the rich with the bulls and their lambs are without hope. The poor with their turtle doves are without hope. With people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Verse 27, there is hope, great hope, immeasurable hope, because we finally have a gospel that shows us salvation that is out of our hands. That is not dependent on our works, on our ability, on our wealth, to perform, he puts salvation out of our hands and into the hands of God Almighty, who does all things well. And that is good news. If it were us, we'd mess it up. How freeing. How wonderful to know that we have been saved by grace. That it is a gift of God, not of works. None of us can boast. None of us get the glory for it. We saw the impossible salvation made possible. Today in our text, the disciples have been watching. They've been absorbing this whole scene with the rich young ruler and Jesus' subsequent response to the crowd. This has raised questions and concerns for them. 
It's revealed more misunderstandings that the disciples have, more wrong desires, more misplaced affections like we all have. And yet Jesus is going to correct them. He's going to teach them an enormous principle of the Christian life. So with that, let's look to our text this morning. Mark 10, 28 through 31. Mark 10, 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who received 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this text, we thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you for giving it to us, inerrant and inspired, once for all delivered to the saints that we may grow thereby, that we may know. Lord, we know that your economy is not our economy. Lord, we know that we need our eternal lenses on to see this rightly. So we ask that that would be done this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. In fact, some of you have just recently discovered him, I've heard, and have been enjoying the fruits of his ministry. He was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London during the mid-20th century. He was a preeminent expositor of scripture, and he was affectionately referred to as the doctor because of his past experience as a medical doctor. Now, he was not just any medical doctor. He had risen to the highest echelons of respect and prestige in the medical community. He even served the royal crown. And sometime later, he was being honored at an event for his time in ministry. And someone asked him what it was like to give up such a career and to walk away from medicine. And he smiled and replied, in essence, I never gave anything up for the Lord. And that response may have puzzled those listening. Well, sure he did. He was an eminent physician. He gave it all up for the ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I gave up nothing. What was he saying? What did he mean? It means, as we will see in our text today, that God is no man's debtor. To think in monetary terms, if every time you gave me $10, I gave you back 100 would it ever be possible for you to truly give something to me? Could you ever actually give something up for me? Thank you for your 10, here's 100. Never ending. To give something up for someone is to put that person in your debt. And God is no man's debtor. Oftentimes it is helpful on the journey to see where we're driving to. Here, here's a frame and a picture of our destination. We can never truly give up anything for God because of his nature, because of how he repays. There's much more to say on that, but let's dive into our text this morning. Beginning with verse 28, verse 28. 
Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Don't so many good lessons begin with Peter opening his mouth. I'm so grateful for Peter. When I see my own foolishness sometimes, I see Peter's enormous foot in his mouth continually, and I take some comfort. There may be some hope for me. So let's look at our beloved Peter here. As with any principle of observation, we look at what we see, but we also look at what we do not see. And here we do not see what is known as a connecting participle. Now, I hated English growing up. But that basically means that there's no word of verb to adverb to describe the scene that's taking place. Now, why do you care about that? This means that there was an abrupt, sudden, impulsive statement about to be given. Probably strong. It was forceful. It was out of nowhere. Does that sound like Peter? Yes. Now, it gets much better. Our text says Peter began to say to him. This means that Peter's changing the direction and the topic of conversation. Strong, impulsive, abrupt, sudden change of direction and conversation. In other words, something has boiled up inside of Peter and it has a hold on him right now. And unfortunately, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth is about to speak. First word out of Peter's mouth, behold. Oh no, Peter. Behold, behold in biblical language means everyone be quiet and listen up. What I'm about to say is instructive and important. Peter is really riled up in his heart, even to the point that he feels like he's going to bring something to Jesus' attention. Behold, Jesus. Don't miss this, Jesus. Let remind you of something, Jesus. This is brazen. This is the mouth moving when it shouldn't be. Now, just in case anyone was needing clarification, we don't tell the Lord of glory, behold. He tells us, behold. All right, Peter, what is it? We have left everything and followed you. Do you see what the rich man did? We didn't do that. We're here. We've left everything and followed you. If we look at Matthew's account of this scene, Matthew 19, 27, it reads, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? One commentator puts it like this, quote, What's in it for us, Jesus? They are looking for the payout. If we did what the young ruler would not do, what glories await us? Who's going to be at your right hand? Who's going to be at your left hand? We've gone all in. You know that, right? You realize that, right? You said to drop your nets and to follow you, and here we are, fishing for men. Now, quite a few of us, Jesus, I hesitate to tell you, have wives and houses and children back at home. I have a bed. It's comfortable. It's mine. We have, a poor, we have become poor for your sake. Peter and John have left lucrative fishing businesses. Matthew was raking in the bucks as a tax collector. And here we are following you around. What's the payout at the end of this? Materially? Spiritually? I believe these men had both of these in mind. But given Jesus' response, I think the material world is what dominated Peter's thoughts here. And Jesus says what? Indeed you have. But Peter, you don't understand God's economy. God is no man's debtor. You gave your bit as you were called and commanded. But let me explain something magnificent to you. Verse 29. Verse 29. 
Jesus said, truly I say to you. I love that. I'll see your behold, Peter, and I'll raise you a truly. The second person of the Trinity now says, you stop. You listen. You quiet your heart that's worried about its reward because there is something that we need to understand as we walk out the Christian life. Truly I say to you, there is no one. That means none are excluded from this equation, from this economy, from this promise. Who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. This is all inclusive. We are talking material sacrifice here. We are talking relational sacrifice. We are talking about the heartache of separation. Jesus is painting the picture of someone who could theoretically be laid bare. Lost it all. Like how Paul felt as he's out floating on the ocean, hanging onto a piece of shipwreck in the freezing water. And he could have thought, I had it all. I was a highly respected Pharisee, educated, well off. I had all the honor in the marketplace. And here I am floating in this freezing water, hanging onto a board. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I have counted all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered all things and the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ. And if someone asked Paul about giving up his position, his career for Jesus, I'm sure he would have answered as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones responded. I gave up nothing. I gave up nothing. How can you give up something when I'm given the surpassing value of knowing and serving Christ? There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for what? That's what we are leaving. That's what we're leaving. For what purpose? For what purpose do we see here? Look back to our text. For my sake first... And for the gospel's sake. We leave, we sacrifice for a person and for a message. We are taken up and captivated first with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. First for the sake of Christ. Our text says to serve him as both Savior and Lord. And we're not looking to a baby in a manger, not even to the perfect God-man revealed in Mark's gospel. It is to the risen Christ whom we serve, for whose sake we abandon all. The conquering one, the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you, the saints. He's risen and alive. He's alive right now, today, reigning and ruling. Now, looking around our world today, we need a healthy reminder that the throne of heaven is occupied and is complete control. So we abandon all first for the sake of Christ, our text says. Second, Jesus says, for the gospel's sake. I was tempted to gloss over this as self-evident. It is not self-evident in our culture today. We are either ignorant of the gospel or the new fad in evangelicalism is to co-opt the word gospel for whatever you want it to mean. Whatever social cause you are championing, championing, and we will call it a gospel issue. 
Everything now is a gospel issue, like it's some sort of trump card that gives a movement or a position legitimacy. It's often a champion phrase from those on the left to take the latest cause and attach gospel to it. You hear it attached to everything. Healthcare for all is a gospel issue. Saving the planet is a gospel issue. The list goes on. No, no, they are not gospel issues. The gospel is the gospel issue. We do not get to co-opt it for our pet social projects. Yet if Jesus is telling us that it is both for him and for the gospel that we are to leave houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms, ought we to know exactly what it is? Ask a church-going friend sometime this week, what is the gospel? See what they say. The word is thrown around willy-nilly, but what is it? There's no need to guess. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, here it is. If we're going to offer up our meager lives for it, ought we to know what it is? Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed, as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. There's his introduction. He says, here comes the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. I'm only giving you what I got. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. The Westminster Confession as well. Chapter 8 does such a wonderful job of compiling this and speaking it plainly. Listen to this, beloved. Here is the gospel. Quote, according to God's eternal plan and good pleasure, the Son of God equal with the Father and the exact representation of His nature willingly left the glory of heaven, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin and was born the God-man. He walked on this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God, and then in the fullness of time, he was rejected by men and crucified. And on the cross, he carried the sins of the people. He was forsaken of God, suffered divine wrath, and died condemned. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. As a public declaration that his death was accepted, that the punishment for sin was paid, that the demands of justice were satisfied, and that the wrath of God was appeased. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, ascended to heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father and was given glory and honor and dominion over all. And there in the presence of God, he represents his people. And he makes requests and special petitions to God on their behalf. This is the good news of God and of Jesus Christ, his son, close quote. That is the euangelion. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Nothing else. Every other movement and cause is subservient to this truth. There are no addendums, no additions, no alterations. That's it. That is the truth. That we are willing to lose mother and father and brother and sister and home and farm for. If we want the promise that comes next in our text, let's make sure we're on the right train. If we are to offer ourselves for the sake of Christ, ought we to know who he is? 
If we are to offer ourselves for the sake of the gospel, ought we to know what it is? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Watch what happens. Verse 30. Watch this. Verse 30. Except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and farms. Pause there. So much to see. First question. Did Jesus just go prosperity gospel on us here? Are we reading this right? Is he saying if I give up my house and farm, I'll get 100 houses and farms? If you'll just plant this $50 seed right here, you'll get $50,000. No, Jesus did not just turn into a televangelist. All right? Jesus is not saying that I'm going to bless you with the very thing, the material wealth that has the greatest capacity to ruin your soul. I'm not promising to give you the very thing that the rich young ruler possessed that caused him to walk away sad because he was so rich. That's not at all what that means. So what does it mean? We're speaking of one who received 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. This is in the present age. Jesus addresses our eternity, our reward at the end, but here, this is now. Peter wants to know what's in it for them. Where's our reward? Listen to this, beloved. Catch this. You are going to have a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters, a hundred homes to go to, a hundred farms to go to. Listen to those words, saints. What does that sound like? That's the church. That's the church. What do we call each other when we greet? Brother and sister. And now we are part of the family of God. We have hundreds, thousands of brothers and sisters you never had before. Before we came to Christ, did we have those homes to go to and to fellowship? And we now have a hundred homes to go to. You may have lost your family, but you're given a new family. One commentator brings this around historically to the time of Pentecost when thousands were in Jerusalem. And they had traveled to Jerusalem, and now with Peter's preaching, they're, they're born again. Well, what happens when you're born again? Who does a Christian desire to be around? Other Christians, right? But there at Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the conversion of thousands, there were no Christians back home. So guess what many did? They stayed there in Jerusalem. That's how we got this enormous collection of believers in Jerusalem. But now, where would they stay? Who would care for them? Surprise, you will have a hundred homes and a hundred farms. You've given up, as it were, your family, your house, your farm. For me and my gospel, I have a whole family waiting. Brothers and sisters aplenty. The family of Christ, and they will care for you. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful promise, and one that they could see tangibly in front of them. I know many, even some in our own church family, who have lost family because of faith in Christ. Through much pain, much grief, those whom you love and you call mother, father, sister, brother. 
And while the heartache of that loss was, and maybe even still is, tangible and present, they will be the first to tell you that the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ, of being a part of the family of God, as hard as it is to be walked away from or to be abandoned by our earthly family, that we have been given hundreds of brothers and sisters in homes. Material, yes, but it is intertwined with the spiritual as well. This 100-fold blessing. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Dr. Utley writes, quote, Material blessings are not the experience of all godly believers, but the joy and abundance of the larger Christian family experiences are, close quote. You have God's word on that. Now, if you feel like you may not be experiencing that in the family of God, plug in deeply to church community life. Be in your brothers and sisters' homes. This is part of God's plan to sustain and encourage you. But that's not all on this earth. Yes, these wonderful promises of a family given to us, even if we're to lose our own, but as we are ushered into this new life in Christ, we look to our text, what else is our promise on this side of eternity? Along with persecutions. Sure wish that was in the singular there, but sadly it's in the plural. It's in the plural. This should not come as a surprise, but it does help to contextualize the promise that Jesus made. Yes, you are going to have persecutions. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul writes, after they had preached the gospel to that city, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, what? To continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14. This is not a surprise. But look how Jesus couches this. Look how he, he frames it and contextualizes this coming plurality of persecution. You will have hundreds of brothers and sisters. You will have my people with you. You are not alone. Even if all forsake you, I will not forsake you. My people will not forsake you. Just as persecutions are assured, so is the promised blessing of help, of aid, support, comfort, encouragement, provision. God is no man's debtor. You give up nothing. You who will receive 100 times as much. Not only here, not only on this side of eternity, not only are the promises for what we call the nitty gritty now. But last part of verse 30. And in the age to come eternal life put on your eternity goggles beloved it is through those lenses that we must view every circumstance this side of eternity the present hardship the present loss god not only provides abundantly 100 fold on this side of eternity but then lavishes upon us the air of heaven paul tells the corinthians that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Is there not strength 
for the, day, for the day's travails in that promise, beloved. What circumstance could we muster that could knock down that promise? It may look like the righteous are overlooked in life. It may look like the wicked prosper. But are we overlooked if we are in Christ? Do the wicked prosper when their wealth crumbles and fades, when it's here today and gone tomorrow? We have a surpassing value in knowing Christ. Final verse, indeed the final verse of our section that began four messages ago. Verse 31. Verse 31. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Now this is deserving of a message of its own. Our scene began with our rich young ruler. A man who by all accounts would be considered first in the world's standing. And yet he has walked away sad. The grip of idolatry had seized his heart, even standing before the Lord of glory, even having the very author of the Ten Commandments open that very law to him. He went away grieving, for he had much wealth. The first will be last in God's kingdom. While the rich young ruler is certainly still hovering over this scene, he's giving it a a flavor and a direction. It's informing Jesus' lesson. It goes deeper than that. It's personal to the disciples. That's Jesus' audience here. Jesus knows and sees the heart. He discerns the intentions and the motivations of the heart. And so it is with his disciples. The underlying desire, the crevices in the heart where the dirt and the mold grow, still desire reward. They desire for themselves. In fact, if we look very, very quickly down in your word, in your own Bibles there, just a few verses later, look at verse 37 and 43. This is coming up very shortly in our series. Verse 7, James and John speaking. And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. We want to be first. We want the reward and the prestige. Now look down, verse 43. Watch how Jesus responds, verse 43. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. There it is again. Same principle. Our verse today, this verse, our final verse, is priming the pump. It's a further assault on the wrong thinking and motivations for the Christian. Peter is the one who asked, what's in it for me? And James and John here are the ones later asking for prestigious positions. This is Jesus' entire inner circle. The leaders of the disciples, so to speak, are still consumed with recognition and payment. Not realizing that in the kingdom of God, up is down. And down is up. It is the quiet servant in the background who will be first. We have many like that at HHBC. It is the one who obeys the Lord when no one sees. To no fanfare. Theirs is the reward. Beloved, the greatest rewards in heaven have already been reserved for people whose names you will never know. You'll never know them. Indeed, the reply of the Apostle Paul to leaving family and treasure, it was the same as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I gave up nothing. I gave up nothing. 
How can we truly give up something when I'm given the surpassing value of knowing and serving Christ here and in eternity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we wrestle with this text. Lord, we pray by the strength of your Holy Spirit that we are able to wrestle its truth to the ground, that we are able to hold it, to grab hold, and to finally submit to it. Lord, these are difficult texts. These are ones that challenge our hearts. The very crevices of them where where the dirt and mold grow, Lord, this reaches down into them. We ask that you would give us obedience to listen. We ask that you would give us soft hearts, that you would till the dirt. Lord, that the gospel, which we have heard clearly, would take hold, would take root, and bring forth in good season and in due season 10, 50, and 100-fold. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.